Hello again. Let's, uh, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for all your goodness towards us and uh, thank you for the uh, meal and the fellowship that we've been able to enjoy. Uh, we pray that you would um, uh, grant to us now understanding by your Holy Spirit. Please speak to our hearts. What we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. What we are not, please make us. For Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, Well, we're thinking about the book of Esther. Um, In the opening chapters of the book, we've been introduced to the court of the king of Persia, uh, Xerxes or Ahasuerus, uh, in the 5th century BC. He is a vain and ostentatious man, obsessed with wealth and wine. He is dependent on the advice of of others, but susceptible to flattery. He's abusive of women, and despite his supreme power, he see, despite his supreme power, he, see, he seems weak and pitiable. We've met the two key Jewish figures in the story: Mordecai, uh, a minor civil servant, um, who at the end of chapter two, I didn't address this in the first talk, but uh, we heard it as the story was read at the end of chapter two, uh, uh, through a remarkable coincidence. Mordecai saves the king's life when it is threatened by an assassination plot. And Esther, Mordecai's cousin and ward, a beautiful young woman who wins the throne of the Queen of Persia by pleasing the king in his bedchamber. But so far she seems a passive figure. She utters no words at all until chapter 4 and neither Esther nor Mordecai have expressed any kind of uh, spirituality. Uh, To this point in the story, no one has mentioned the name of God and no one will mention uh, the Lord in the whole story. No one prays to God or calls out to him for help. Esther, following Mordecai's advice, keeps her Jewishness a secret and breaks Jewish laws relating to marriage, food and religious, religious observance many times over in the course of the story And yet, God is not absent from this story. Although his presence is veiled, it is not a passive presence. He may be hidden, but he is working out his purposes, even even through spiritually compromised people. Well, uh, the question that is raised by the next instalment in the story, and I'm sure you picked it as we listened to the unfolding, uh, uh, the dreadful unfolding of this story, uh, the big question is, can God save his people? Can his people trust themselves to him in the face of opposition, whether from outside or nearer at hand? And if God can be trusted to save his people, what will that mean for the way we think about Uh, about God's people, ourselves and others. Uh, Well, on the outline, I've got a couple of headings for you, Enemies Without and Enemies Within, on page three. 
So firstly, enemies without. Uh, In chapter 3, we're introduced to a new character uh, who soon proves to be an enemy, not only to Mordecai, but to all the Jews in the Persian Empire. The king appoints a new prime minister, Haman, the son of Hamadatha. Uh, The king commands that all other members of the court should pay him due honour by bowing before him and Mordecai refuses to do it. The other officials cannot understand Mordecai's behaviour and eventually they tell Haman. Not for the first time in the story, a powerful man becomes enraged and both times it results in consequences far beyond the perceived insult. Verse 6 says, When Haman learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. We're not ever told why Mordecai doesn't bow uh, to Haman. Uh, Mordecai is an official in the court of some kind, so his Jewishness has not stopped him from achieving some level of influence uh, in the kingdom. And uh, 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 his Jewishness didn't stop him from rescuing the king when he heard about the assassination plot. And in fact, uh, this becomes a vital aspect of the story as it unfolds. He told Esther to keep her Jewishness a secret which exposed her to danger and humiliation, uh, not to mention uh, the clear breaking of God's commands. So it's hard to see why bowing to Haman was where Mordecai decided to draw the line. Uh, Perhaps this was principle, uh, like uh, Daniel and the others, drawing their, making their statement of principle, or perhaps, perhaps it was just pride. Perhaps he wanted to be Prime Minister himself. One possibility is that Haman is described as an Agagite, a descendant of the Amalekites, Uh, who were long-standing and sworn enemies of the Jews, so it may be that Mordecai is perpetuating a long-standing tribal feud. Uh, But if he is, he soon lives to regret choosing this battle to fight because his principle exposes his whole people to threat. Haman's response is all out of proportion to Mordecai's insult. Uh, It's not really the king's command that he's seeking to defend here. He's taking it personally. And he uses his position of influence and power to serve his personal agenda. The abuse of power is almost always like that, isn't it? People use the advantages of influence and responsibility within a particular system, government, or corporation, or community, or dare I say it, in the church. They use the position they have within some structure to further their own personal goals and interests and vendettas. That's what the abuse of power is. Uh, In many parts of the world uh, to this day, it's possible to observe that those who rise to the top of political power automatically assume that their position is precisely their opportunity 
to advance the interests of their family or their tribe or their friends. It is the most common form of corruption in public institutions and private corporations. We can think of family dynasties, we can think of nations like uh, Mr Mugabe in Zimbabwe perhaps, but uh, even in the United States, um, you know, when Sarah Palin was governor of Alaska, uh, she uh, dedicated herself to removing a state trooper um, who was her sister's former husband from office. Uh, when Mr Obama was elected president, the governor of Illinois tried to sell uh, his Senate seat in America. <laughs> um, bastions of democracy like our own are by no means exempt when it comes to frail human beings and institutional power. That's why the scriptures say, don't put your trust in princes. Haman decides not to take his revenge on Mordecai alone, but to use this as a pretext for wiping out the whole Jewish population in the vast Persian Empire. But not even Haman can get that done without the authorisation of the king. And his speech to the king is an exercise in subtle manipulation and deception. Haman doesn't identify the Jews by name. Uh, he subtly refers to a certain people in your realm. And then Haman offers a true statement that they are dispersed throughout the empire followed by a statement that might be half true at best. Their laws are different from all the other people. In fact, of course, it was only their religious laws that were different uh, and they were tolerated and nothing in the Torah required them to disobey their pagan rulers in other matters. And finally, Haman closes his argument with a blatant lie, namely that the Jews disobeyed the king's laws when in fact there was just one case of one man who refused to bow to Mordecai. Finally, Haman's personal hatred motivates him to offer the king a bribe and the king proves easy to persuade. He gives Haman authority without even asking the identity of the people whose fate he has just sealed. Through history, right up to today, the combination of hatred and misinformation on the one hand and self-interested and weak leadership on the other is more than enough to see injustice flourish alongside genocide. And really the examples in modern times are too many to recite, aren't they? Uh, I suppose one of the most tragic and horrific, not only because of the sheer numbers involved, but also because both sides of the conflict were at least nominally Christian. The hundred days of the Rwandan genocide in 1994, fueled by 24-hour radio broadcasts on uh, inciting violence, and spewing lies about the minority population. And for a hundred days the world did nothing. Uh, it would be a mistake to think that there are no more Hamans in the world 
or that there are no more weak leaders who remain indifferent to mass-scale violence. And it would be a mistake to think that there are not, to this day, those who wish to rid the world of God's people. Jesus warned his followers that those who hated him will hate them also. And so it has proved to be. But in the context of the Bible, the threat against the Jews is also a threat against God, the God of the Jews. He has sworn a covenant with the descendants of Abraham. Can God save his people? He has promised a Messiah who will not only rescue Israel, but be a light to the Gentiles. He has promised through his prophets a new creation in which Jew and Gentile live in harmony and feast on fine food and rich wine. If Haman has his way, what will become of the promises of God, of sending the Messiah, of saving his people, of blessing the nations and renewing the whole creation? Can God act? There is the enemy without. But rather surprisingly, we discover as the story proceeds that there is also an enemy within. So secondly, the the enemy within. In chapter 4, Mordecai and Esther communicate through messages. Uh, There is a uh, distance between Esther in the palace and Mordecai at the gate. Mordecai and all the Jews begin to mourn, dressing in sackcloth and ashes, fasting and weeping and wailing. The author scrupulously avoids saying that they called out to God and that they offered prayers for deliverance. Uh, Perhaps they did, but we're not told that they do that. We live this story from the human side. Does God see what is happening? Does God care what is happening? Can God save his people? Will he do anything? Esther's servants inform her of Mordecai's behaviour and her first response is to send Mordecai clothes. Her actions seem motivated by her desire to protect Mordecai from uh, breaching the protocol of the king's palace which do not permit garments of mourning in the king's precinct. Mordecai refuses the clothes, (laughs) sends them back to Esther, um, forcing Esther to send a servant to find out what is troubling Mordecai. Here is the first of the enemies within. Ignorance. Esther is queen of Persia. She lives in the royal palace and she is a Jew. An edict has gone out for the destruction of her people and she has no idea. All the Jews throughout the empire are in mourning. Mordecai is in mourning. The citizens of Susa, we're told at the end of chapter 3, are bewildered. But Esther doesn't know. She thinks Mordecai is out of clothes and sends him fresh underwear. So Mordecai is going to test Esther's ability to remain ignorant of the plight of God's people. He sends word back through Esther's servant. 
instructing her to go into the presence of the king to seek mercy for his people, for her people. Mordecai indicates it's time for Esther to reveal her Jewish identity to the king. Esther's reply unveils the second enemy within, self-interest. She sends Hatak back, uh, her servant, back to Mordecai. She's got two reasons why she can't possibly go into the king. In the first place, there's a law that anyone who approaches the king without being summoned, uh, anyone who does such a thing is subject to only one penalty, death. The only exception is if the king extends the scepter of favour to that person. But in the second place, she hasn't been summoned to the king for 30 days. And so she fears that he may not extend his scepter to her. It's five years since she married. And perhaps by this time her husband has become bored with her. But Mordecai will have none of it. He warns her in stark terms in verse 13. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. This time, Esther breaks through her fear. She calls for a three-day fast, after which she says, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. She breaks through her fear, she breaks through her self-interest, she identifies with her people and commits herself to approaching the king to seek his mercy. For the first time, she gives a command to Mordecai and the chapter ends with him following her instructions. From now on in the story, she'll be called Queen Esther. She's achieved a new status, a depth of humanity in this moment. But her words remain ambiguous. She calls for fasting, she doesn't call for prayer. By calling for fasting, she ensures that all the Jewish people in Susa will not be celebrating Passover, which begins the next day and which is commanded by the Torah. Nevertheless, she has settled on a courageous path that puts herself at risk for the sake of her people and will finally make known to the king her identity as a Jew. Uh, well, if you turn, your, turn the page in your booklet, you'll see I have four points I want to make. And you can fill in the blanks. That's to keep you awake after lunch since my voice is inclined to put people to sleep. <laughs> so the first one is... Uh, Serving the Lord where he places us. Serving the Lord where he places us. 
Uh, most of us are not queens of Persia. You can always count on a preacher to say something insightful. <laughs> most of us are not queens of Persia, uh, but from the perspective of Scripture, every human being is weighted with opportunity and responsibility because we are made in God's image. Every human being. And as God's image bearers, alone in the creation, those who bear his image, every one of us from the least to the greatest, as his image bearers, we have a sacred responsibility and a privileged opportunity to serve the interests of the Lord in whatever situation he has placed us, whoever we are. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom. And so we are to approach every situation in which we find ourselves as image bearers of God, living for, seeking, manifesting his reign, his reign of mercy and justice, of beauty and truth. Salvation, as the scriptures understand it, means freedom from the grip of Satan and the wrath of God. Forgiveness of sin, healing of the body, reconciliation with people, release from poverty and the recreation of the earth. Salvation means all that, though we don't have it all yet. We've been born into this time, in this nation, And in whatever situation you find yourself, we are called to bear God's image in that situation, living in the light of the salvation we've received, living as signposts of the salvation that God offers. Now consider the alternative. Haman uses his position to advance his own personal agenda wicked as it is. It is the essence of corruption. But Esther has to fight the impulse to use her position as queen merely to advance her own interests. It's the enemy within. Now, brothers and sisters, here's the thing. Can there be any doubt that 21st century Western Christians are the most powerful, wealthy and influential Christians who have ever lived. Now I know, up here in the northeast of Tasmania, you don't feel very wealthy or powerful or influential. And we don't either, in uh, suburban Perth. <laughs> but compared to the vast majority of Christians, uh, in history and the vast majority today. We are palace people. Whatever our situation, uh, whatever our resources, whatever our opportunities, We are not to exploit them to serve ourselves, but we are to offer them to serve the kingdom. 
Acts says, in God we live and move and have our being. We can be confident that God has fixed the times and circumstances of our lives for such a time as this. So that would be a good thing to think about and to talk about, wouldn't it? And, and what a wonderful, how, how uh, lovely and fitting to hear about, this, uh, about the Uganda project and the work of Tasmanian Christians to assist not strangers, brothers and sisters who, who don't have access to the most basic resource in life, the stuff we flush down the toilet, drinking water. How wonderful to hear about that today. And how wonderful to have the opportunity as well to hold out the water that our body needs and the water that our souls need. Just makes me tingle. How wonderful to be so wealthy as to be able to do that. Uh, so, to, so please do, over afternoon tea, uh, please uh, talk with one another, encourage with one another with the ways in which you are able to do this already and in how we can do so more and more. To live for the kingdom, uh, to drive away the enemy in our own hearts that assumes that all that we have from God's hands is merely for our own benefit. Uh, Secondly, fill in the blanks, free to serve. Free to serve. Uh, Esther discovers what is always true, that serving the Lord wherever he places us is always costly but ultimately freeing. Always costly, but ultimately freeing. For Esther to decide to serve the Lord involves her making the decision to put herself at risk, at risk of losing everything, even her own life. But what Mordecai's challenge made clear to her was that if she could not risk her position in the palace, she was already its prisoner. Though she was queen, the palace was a prison to her. But she risks everything and that makes her free. Not risk-taking for its own sake, uh, as, as, as if a risk somehow proves your faith, but in response to the needs of God's people, she risks her own comfort and safety. She risks what she has for those in desperate Danger. To really be queen, she has to show that the palace does not control her. To serve the Lord is what makes us really free. Uh, as uh, Bob Dylan sang, you've got to serve someone. If not the Lord, then who? Whoever. <coughs> I, I, was, I wasn't a Christian when I listened to Bob Dylan. <laughs> That's a joke. Whoever or whatever it is that you cannot let go of to serve Christ, that thing, that person, that position, 
reputation, material advantage, position of influence, that which you cannot let go of to serve Christ. That is your true master. Your prison warder. But Esther and Mordecai show us that God delights to use even those whose knees are wobbly, whose motives are mixed, whose prayers are weak, whose efforts are feeble. The palace will discard you. Nothing we achieve can satisfy the longing of our hearts for significance, for home, for security. Only Jesus can do that. His love, his comfort, his grace and mercy, his truth and beauty, our deep satisfaction is found in the gifts that only he can give. He is the one who sets hearts free. If you risk everything to serve him, you risk nothing. Thirdly, fill in the blanks, serving the Lord's people in need. Serving the Lord's people in need. I said that uh, the first of the enemies within was ignorance, that Esther didn't know what was going on in her own kingdom, though her own people had been sentenced to mass extinction. We have a special responsibility, it seems to me, to be informed and not ignorant. We're always talking about the information age. We know all kinds of things about all kinds of people all, kind, all over the world. At any time of the day or night, we have instant access to everything. Did you know that when the democracy protests were taking place in Tahrir Square in Cairo a year ago and the Western world was cheering, at the very same time that they were um, uh, deposing Mubarak, a mob went through the Christian village in Cairo that is built on the garbage dump because that is what Christians are consigned to do and killed nine men in cold blood. Did you know that? It was on the web. That was an outcome. That was a, a sideshow, the, 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 the democracy protest. And now, just, uh, just in the last fortnight, when they announced the day of rage to protest against the deposition of uh, uh, Mr uh, Morsi, 47 churches and Christian businesses burned down, looted, destroyed. 47 in one day that Barnabas Fund knew of. Did you know that? And tomorrow uh, the Barnabas Fund has called for a world day of prayer and action for the Christian communities in Syria and Egypt. Now, amongst the millions of people fleeing uh, Syria, are the tens of thousands of Christians who've been told never to come back. 
because the brutal Assad regime is being opposed by the Islamist Al-Qaeda. The world is not an easy place to live in, is it? Sometimes there's only bad guys. And in many parts of the world, amongst the many victims of many religions, are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Who will help them? if not us. The sorrow of the people of God around the world, the sorrows are legion, but they're not distant problems happening to other people. They are the sufferings of the body of Christ of which we are a part. There is much that can be done, there is much being done. Uh, Almost all of it is under-resourced. Christian brothers and sisters in need of food and shelter and clothing, Christian brothers and sisters in need of education and training and medical treatment, Christian brothers and sisters in need of advocates and defenders and freedom Christian brothers and sisters in need of Bibles and pastors and evangelists. If you don't know, the organisations Voice of the Martyrs, the Barnabas Fund, Christian Blind Mission, Compassion, Open Doors, Tear, Google them. (laughs) There's plenty of ways to be informed and no excuse for being ignorant. What can we do to love God's people in need? And uh, lastly, serving our mediator and advocate. Serving our mediator and advocate. Esther overcomes ignorance of her people's plight and self-interested self-protection to stand before the king and to make her appeal on behalf of her people. She is a very human hero and like all the human heroes in the Bible she is spiritually weak and morally compromised and I say that by way of encouragement (laughs) because if God can use Esther then he can use morally compromised and spiritually weak people like us or at least like me. It might be different in Tasmania. But Esther, who encourages us because our faith is weak and feeble like hers, also encourages us because she points us to a far superior mediator and advocate. Jesus does not merely risk death to save us, but so loved his bride that he gave himself up willingly to make her holy. He does not appear before a weak and despotic king to make his appeal. He is sent from the Father to be our Saviour. And see what this means for our service of him. Please understand this. I've got five lines and then we're going to have our cup of tea. So, <laughs> But hear this right. 
we are not simply to feel guilty for our self-interest and ignorance because a transformed life will not emerge from a base of guilt. And we are not simply to be inspired by Esther's courage and risk-taking because then we would just exchange self-protection for self-exaltation. Now, the love of Jesus in the death of Jesus changes our hearts in this way. Jesus says to us, you are loved, you are mine. There is nothing you can do to make me love you more. There is nothing you can do to make me love you less. My death is your freedom. So you are free to serve wherever I have placed you. Free to meet the needs of my people. Free to suffer loss and tears and pain for my sake. Because you're free. You don't have to prove it. You don't have to earn it. I love you. You're free. In Jesus, we are loved. So we're free to serve the Lord who loves us. Amen.